studying the Word of God tonight, and we're picking up our study in the book of Leviticus. How many of you guys have ever actually studied through Leviticus before? A couple of us. But for the majority, no. So this is, this is new territory for a lot of us, and um, it's good stuff. Leviticus in chapter 6 tonight, we're really just picking up where we left off, and uh, we'll make it through chapter 6 and chapter 7, Lord willing. So I've said that for the last three weeks. But tonight, I just have a feeling it's going to happen. <laughs> Let's pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are holy. That's what this book is about, your holiness. And we declare you as holy. We join with the angels and the saints in heaven that sing that you're holy. And we just say, Lord, thank you that you being a holy God made a way for sinful people like me to come into relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, as we gather to study your word, we're not really here just to, to gather knowledge for knowledge's sake. Lord, we're here because this book is alive. It's powerful. And we pray that you would use the scriptures by your Holy Spirit to draw us into a closer relationship with our Savior. You expose areas in our heart that need to be exposed, that you would teach us and convict us, and that, Lord, we would just love Jesus more when we leave this place tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why well, I, I mentioned it in the prayer, but I'll say it again. And, and I say these things over and over, not just to annoy you with repetition, but it's really, as we say, the mother of learning is repetition. So you're going to know the book of Leviticus. And the main theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness, the holiness of God. And, and therefore, here's this holy God that wants to dwell with his people, Israel. But how can an unholy people dwell with a holy God? And that's kind of what this book is about. It's really divided into two chunks. Um, the first half dealing with worship and, and specifically sacrifice. And then the, the last half is dealing with the walk or to be separated. And we're going to be looking at that. I've mentioned for several weeks that um, the first seven chapters kind of make up its, the first chunk. And what it is, it's dealing with five offerings or five sacrifices. And I just, again, not to belabor the point, but listen, right out of the gates, the book of Leviticus starts with blood. Right out of the gates, it's offering, sacrifice, 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 and God is just making it abundantly clear from the get-go. One does not approach a holy God without something having to be done with our sin. Amen? And the, the, the understanding is there has to be a substitute. Something has to die in place for our sins, and that's what we've been looking at, these five offerings, three of which are voluntary, two of which are were mandatory. We've already looked at all five of them tonight as we pick it up in verse uh, 8 of chapter 6 and to the end of chapter 7. It's a review. So you're like, what review? We've been, are you kidding me? Yeah, we're going to review everything we just went over. It's not going to repeat everything. It's going to give a couple little more tidbits of information for each one of those five offerings. And so that's what will make up uh, the bulk of what we're looking at tonight. So let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to start reading through my new glasses. I just got these um, like 10 minutes ago. My other ones had an unfortunate incident. Mitch's rear end. <laughs> but Anna was so just 
I mean, I think these are amazing. They say hang loose on them if you can't read those. Anyway, I'm hoping they work. So, yep. So, chapter 6. No, chapter, they're perfect. Chapter 6, verse 8. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons. Now, notice that quickly. Uh, before when this started, it was addressing the nation of Israel. But now it's very specifically addressing Aaron and the sons because they're the priests. And this is what they need to be aware of dealing with these sacrifices. He says, uh, tell Aaron and his sons, this is the law of the burnt offering. And the burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning. And the fire of that altar shall be kept burning on it. Verse 10. And the priest shall put on the linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then, verse 11, he shall take off his garment, put on the other garment, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Verse 12, the fire on the, uh, shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire, listen, verse 13, tune into this. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So the first thing that we come up with in this review, and I, I kind of call it like an appendix. It's kind of like some additional information for the priests regarding these five offerings. The first one he looks at is the burnt offering, and that was the first one we looked at in chapter 1. Just a quick to jog your memory. The burnt offering was a voluntary offering. Didn't have to bring it. You could. And what was special about the burnt offering, unlike the other offerings like the sin or the peace or the guilt offering, what was unique about the burnt offering is you didn't give part of the animal to God and then keep back part of it for yourself or for the priest. The entire animal was burned on the altar. And what it was communicating was total consecration, total dedication, as if that you were saying, just like the entire animal is being consumed on the altar, God, I give you my entire self. Amen? You guys remember that? Ultimately, obviously, speaks of Jesus, how he just gave completely himself to the will of the Father and to save us, completely gave himself on the cross for our benefit. Now, what's interesting, too, about this to take note of um, is what's different about this particular burnt offering is it's not necessarily referring to an individual bringing a burnt offering. This is going back to Exodus like 39, somewhere in there. Actually, I have it from my notes. Let me see if I have it real quick. I don't have it in my notes, but I think it's Exodus 39, um, where Moses talks about a continual burnt offering every morning and every evening. So every morning and every evening, they would bring a burnt offering, if you would, for the nation. Every morning, every evening. And actually, I don't know if you caught that. It said um, it'll burn from the night until morning. Do you guys notice that? Little tidbit, little freebie for you. Um, the way that the Jews look at a day is different than the way we look at a day. We look at a day from the morning until night, right? They look at a day from night until morning. So our day like starts bright and then just gets dark. Their day starts dark, but then gets bright. Which, by the way, another little freebie for you. Um, when it talks about the day of the Lord, when he comes back, did you know when Jesus comes back, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back, and what a great day that's going to be. It is. But when he first comes back, he's going to come back as a judge, and there's going to be blood, and there's going to be judgment, and there's going to be death, and it's going to start dark, 
but then he's going to rule and reign on his throne, and it's going to get brighter and brighter and brighter. Amen? So that, I don't know why I threw that in there, but there you go. So here's the thing. The burnt offering was brought in, and, and what they were supposed to do is every morning and every night bring this offering of total consecration. I think I said this when we did Leviticus 1, but I love that, by the way, that there was every morning and every evening. Because I don't know about you guys, I could start out in the morning like, God, I'm all yours, but then throughout the day just kind of fail or falter. But then guess what? Every evening I can just go, God, I'm all yours again. Amen? I can just keep bringing myself to the Lord. Now what we saw in here, guys, were some, just some interesting details about how they were to dispose of the ashes and the garments that were put on and put off and put the ashes next to the altar, then scoop them up and take them outside to a clean place. And it's interesting information. But the thing that really kind of popped out to me this time as I read it, and maybe you noticed this, um, but three different times it says that the fire on the altar was to be kept burning continually. Did you guys catch that? Yes or no? The fire was to be kept burning continually. It was to never go out. And I've just really been thinking about that. Because, again, the well, just in a practical way, why not have the fire go out? Well, one, because it takes a lot of fire and time to burn that huge carcass of that ox or lamb or whatever. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he's like, make sure the fire doesn't go out. Why? So it keeps burning that thing until it's ashes, right? Keep that fire burning. And you know, I was thinking about this because the burnt offering is that offering of dedication, of that holy giving my life to you. And guys, isn't that the trick to keep the fire burning to keep it from going out you know i don't know about you but when did you do that because you know i got saved as a kid but i think my burnt offering so to speak when i like romans 12 it where i said god my life is fully yours that came later as a teen and i don't know about you the way it happened with me is that there was a moment where I really felt and sensed the presence of God and I was overwhelmed and he was working in my life and I realized his forgiveness in my life and out of a response to that, I was like, Lord, I'm all yours and I meant it. You know, for me, I've mentioned it many times, but um, one of the biggest impacting moments of my life was I went on my first missions trip to Mexico. I was like 15, 16 years old. We had this speaker every night and he would, as the teams would come together and they would, have this big worship team and hundreds of teenagers all there to serve and then a speaker that would come out every night and just challenge us. And I remember he, there was a song we used to sing and it was called, I'll obey. I'll obey because I, I'll obey and serve you. I'll obey because I love you. I'll obey. My life is in your hands for it's the way to prove my love when feelings go away and if it costs me everything, I'll obey. And we would sing that. But one night, he challenged us. He said, don't sing it. Do not sing this song unless you mean it. So take some time to think about what you're saying. And there I stood as a 15, 16-year-old young man, and I, with all of my heart, was saying, no, I'm going to, if it costs me everything, I'll obey you. I want my life to be yours. And guys, I meant that. And I was on fire. And, and the Lord met me there. And then I came home. And I went back to high school. And with all my good intentions, I wanted to stay on fire. But you know what? The fire dwindled until summer camp. And I went to summer camp. And I went to summer camp, and they had a speaker up there. And I'm like, I'll do it again, Lord of all years. And I come back on fire. And then I go back to high school. High school is the fire sucker. The fire extinguisher. 
And then I'd go to winter camp. And, and, and it seemed like for a season of my life, it was like this roller coaster of high highs on fire for the Lord and then down low. And it's, anybody, can anybody relate to that? And I couldn't figure out how to keep the fire burning. And so what I would do is I thought, well, I know what I need to do. I just need to try harder. And, I, and I'm just going to, the more willpower, and I'm going to be super Christian. And I'm going to do everything right. I'm never going to cuss again. I'm not going to lust again. I'm not going to disrespect my parents again. I'm not going to, you know, and I would do awesome for like 12 minutes until I got to school. No, I'm just kidding. But you know how that goes. And, and, and I went through this cycle for years and years of up and down and thinking to keep the fire going, I needed to try harder. So then I would implement some rules for myself because clearly if I can just commit to reading X amount of chapters a day and do this and be disciplined. But here's what I found out. It wasn't discipline. It wasn't rule keeping or anything like that that was going to keep the fire burning in my heart. And don't get me wrong. There is a place for spiritual discipline. There is a place for, for that kind of thing. But it's a mistake to think that in my self-effort, I was going to keep that fire for Jesus burning in my heart. You know what I discovered? The same thing that's right here. You know how they kept the fire burning? This is deep. Get ready to write. The priest shall burn wood on it. You know how they kept the fire going? They put wood on it. They put fuel on it. I don't mean to be corny or silly or anything like that, but guys, that's how you keep the fire burning. You, You put wood on it. Wood in the Bible oftentimes speaks of the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ was nailed to a tree. Cursed is everyone who, who dies on a tree. Acts chapter 5 talks about Christ dying on a tree. When, oftentimes when you speak of wood, you're talking about the cross. And guys, this is what I learned. You want to keep the fire of dedication and consecration and service burning hot? It's not through self-willpower, keeping rules or anything like that. Put wood on it every morning and the fire will burn hot i'm not trying to come up with some cute little thing like a little sermon note i'm dead serious about this one guys this is the key like the hebrews the author of hebrews says looking unto jesus consider jesus look to jesus guys every morning you just remind yourself of the gospel of jesus christ you preach the gospel to yourself you keep your eyes on the cross you talk to jesus you look to jesus it's not about me keeping the fire burning it's about me looking at jesus and what he did for me and that fires me up amen i love where paul says in romans 1 he says i can't wait to get to rome so i can preach the gospel to you guys paul said i can't wait to get to rome to preach the gospel to a bunch of christians Wait a minute, they were already Christians. Why does he need to preach the gospel to them? Because the gospel is not simply, like I said last week, declaring the good news to unbelievers. That's part of it. But guys, the gospel and all of its implications and the scope of its implications is for us as believers to marvel at and grow in and go into the depths of every single day of our lives. Amen? And when I get in the shower in the morning, that's often when this happens for me, is in the shower in the morning, I will preach the gospel to myself. I will start quoting John 3.16. I will quote Romans 5.8. I will just start praising God and remembering all that he's done for me. And throughout the day, breaking away just to try to get my mind on Jesus. Songs like that second one that we sang, that Steve sang. When I think about, I don't even know the words, but man, that's true for me. When I think about how he turned me around and set my feet on the rock and saved me. Guys, I, I choke up, not because I'm so holy, but... I've experienced the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
And that's what fires me up, and that's what will keep you on fire, and that's what will keep me on fire. That's why Paul said stuff like, when I got to Corinth, I was scared. I didn't know what to say, but I just determined I'm going to say Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just always focus on Jesus. You want to stay on fire? It's not about you trying to stoke your fire. Turn your mind to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Ponder Jesus. Drink in Jesus. Have communion and think about Jesus. You guys get the point. It's Jesus. Well, verse 14. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and its frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten with unleavened, excuse me, unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. Um, I have given it as their portion of my food offering. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. And so just a quick reminder on this, the grain offering, if you guys flash back to chapter 2, the grain offering was, was, you know, they would bring this fine flour along with oil, along with frankincense, and they would either bake it or on a griddle or in a pan or whatever, and they'd offer that to the Lord. And so there's not a whole lot of new information here for us, but I just want to remind you that, again, here we, here we have an offering that speaks of Jesus, that fine flour speaks of his perfection, his perfect humanity in his incarnation. Oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. Frankincense speaks of his priestly ministry as they would burn incense in the, in the temple. And so it speaks of his life and the perfection of his life. Um, some interesting things here. Basically, it's talking about how p- part of that would go up on the altar to God. Part of it would come to the priest. And what you're going to discover, guys, as you look through this, um, the priest kept getting all these portions. And they, they would be able to eat it. They'd have to eat it in a special place. But basically, when the people brought these things, part of it went to God, part of it went back to the people, part of it went to the priest. And that was how God was providing for um, those who were in the ministry. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a moment. And then it says in verse 19, um, now this is another little stipulation that wasn't in the first part of uh, chapter 2. It says in verse 19, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an epaph of fine flour, as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed, baked in pieces like grain offering, and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest among uh, Aaron's sons, who is anointed to succeed him, there you go, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. And it says the whole of it shall be burned, and every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. And so what you have from 19 to 23 Simply put is it's a grain offering, but this is uh, if, if there's like a new priest coming in, like the new guys coming in, it's like the ordination sacrifice. Does that make sense? And so if that was the case and they would just burn the whole thing and they weren't allowed to eat it, and that's all that that's talking about. Verse 24. Now we're going to look at the sin offering again, something we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And then the Lord spoke to Moses said and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. 
This, he says, in the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord it is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat of it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches, listen to verse 27 through 30, kind of tune in here. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthen vessel in which it's it was boiled shall be broken and if it's boiled in a bronze vessel that shall that shall be scoured and rinsed in water and every male among the priests may eat of it it is most holy but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place it shall be burned up with fire so again i i know guys i know this gets repetitive and it's hard to stay tuned but think with me for a moment this is the sin offering the sin offering was not a voluntary offering. It was a mandatory offering. And this was designed to make atonement for somebody who had sinned unintentionally. So that person would have to bring a, a ram or whatever. I can't remember the stipulations as the animals, but they would bring something from the flock or what have you, and they would lay their hand on that animal, transferring their guilt and shame and sin onto that animal as the priest would kill it and the blood would drain out and they would go through that whole thing and it was to make atonement for them it was to cover their sin but what's interesting about the the the, the new little regulations or stipulations that's put on here is and this kind of struck me basically anything that came in contact with the blood of that sin offering or the body of that sin offering was never the same Here's what I mean. So they brought the sin offering, and by the way, some of the other little rules were that part of it would go to the priest. And the priest that did the work of cutting it up, and, you know, that would be a lot of work, you know, cutting it and filleting it and putting it on the altar and all that stuff. He gets the, the, the portion that comes from that. He gets to feed his family with that. But if blood from that sin offering splatters on one of his garments, whoa, you don't just keep wearing that garment like nothing's wrong. It's got holy blood of the sin offering on it. You take that thing off and you go to a holy place and you wash that. Did you guys catch that? And if some of the, the meat that, that you have touches anything, that thing becomes holy. If you boiled it in like a ceramic or some kind of, you know, ceramic vessel or whatever, some porous vessel like that, and you boiled the meat from a sin offering into that thing, you don't just go and use that bowl for something else. That thing came in contact with the sin offering. It's holy. What do you do? You break it. You don't use it anymore. If it was a, it, what was the other one? A, um, a bronze vessel, well, it says that you scour that thing. I mean, you get in there and you scour it and you clean it and you scour it and, and it just gets, and it's because, it, why? It came in contact with the sin offering. And I just thought that was so beautiful because like all the offerings, you guys know this by now, it speaks of Jesus. Guys, Jesus is our sin offering, amen? Jesus is the one who made atonement through his sacrifice on the cross for my sin. And here's what I love about it. Anything, anyone who truly comes in contact with Jesus is never the same. Amen? Man, if you come in contact, what I mean by that is if the man or the woman that has really met Jesus. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about you've had an encounter where you have had your sins forgiven and you are you understand that he 
took the penalty of sin upon himself, you know what happens to you? You're changed. And you become holy. There's holiness involved. Not because you're so awesome, but he has, he has set you apart. Amen? And there's a cleansing that's happened in us. A scouring, if you would, on the inside out. It's not us just trying to be moral and good people now. No, we've come in contact with Jesus, and I've been changed and washed and cleansed from the inside out. Amen? And not only that, when you come in contact with Jesus as the great sin offering, there's holiness. Let me just back up to that one. If you come in contact with Jesus as your sin offering, there will be holiness in you. I felt like I was going to move on, but I felt like I needed to back up on that one for a minute. Because it's not so much like, oh, you better act right now because you call yourself a Christian. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman who, who, who has truly met Jesus. It's not you better be holy. Here's what's going to happen. You will be holy. I'm not saying you won't be, you'll, you'll be perfect and never sin again, but you can't stay the same. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? Remember Romans 6? And I, this is not on my notes, so I'm freelancing here a little bit, but in Romans 6 where it actually ends in verse chapter 5 where he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds. And then Paul, kind of playing devil's advocate, says, well, then why don't we just keep sinning so that grace can abound? And he goes, that's impossible. How can you who have died to sin continue therein? What he's saying is you don't understand. When you, come, when you meet Jesus, a fundamental change happens inside of you. You can't stay the same. It's not that you don't have the capacity to sin anymore, but you have been changed, and there's a new want in your life, and you don't want to sin anymore. You want to live for what's right. Amen? And so if there's a lack of holiness, if there's just no regard for living in a way that is pleasing to God or set apart to God or I don't care what God's word says or God's law says or what God's heart is. I'm going to live my way. If, there's, if that's an attitude in a person, there's something seriously wrong with your relationship with Christ. Because if a man or a woman has touched Jesus, or I should say if Jesus has touched them, there will be holiness. And increasing as you get to know him. Not because you're trying to just be such a better person. It's, you guys understand a change has happened. A change has happened. I'm not the same. And this is, guys, this is what sets Christianity apart. We're not pre preaching moralism. We're not preaching, you know, enlightenment. We're not teaching, you know, self-improvement. What we're teaching is we are wretches. We are broken individuals. But when you come in contact with Jesus, you're not only forgiven, you're a new creation, and he changes you on the inside, and now all of a sudden you want to live for God. Amen? There's holiness. You can't come in contact with Jesus and there not be holiness involved. And there's cleanliness. You think differently. You, you want different things. That, that cleansing happens and there's a brokenness. They had to break that clay pot. You know what I found? You know the people I love to be around, quite honestly, are the people that have just been broken by Jesus. That just when you say the name Jesus, for them, it's not church. It's not like, oh, I guess i got to go to church or religion. But when you mention the name Jesus, they're like, bro, you don't understand. I was lost and Jesus found me. Those are the kind of people I love to be around. Where there's no more confidence in self. There's no more confidence in what I bring to the table or who I am. Where it's just like, I'm nothing and I'm broken. And it's not this, like this false humility or pretentiousness. It's just, no, I'm just, in a good way, 
I was like broken in a bad way, but then I came to Jesus, now I'm broken in a good way. I'm broken from my self-life. You guys understand what I'm trying to say? I know I'm not getting the words out real, real clear tonight, but you understand what I'm, what I'm getting at. All that to say is, man, once you come in contact with the sin offering, you don't stay the same. Chapter 7. And this is the law of the guilt offering. This is the one we looked at uh, last week. It is most holy in the place where they kill the burnt offering. They shall kill the guilt offering, and the blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all of its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, uh, the two kidneys, the fat that is on uh, the loins, and on the long lobe, not the short lobe, but the long lobe (laughs) of the liver uh, that, that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar's food offering to the Lord. And it's a guilt offering. So every male among the priests shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering, listen to this, this is interesting. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There's one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers uh, any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of that burnt offering um, that he offered. And every uh, grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among those the sons of Aaron. So, uh, again, not a whole lot of new information about the guilt offering, but just to stay consistent in reminding you, uh, the guilt offering was like the sin offering, making atonement for unintentional sins. You guys remember what was special about the guilt offering? There was two things. Number one, it was pertaining to sins concerning the holy things, remember? Even when you're trying to do your best and trying to bring the, they would still mess it up and God would say, well, that was something. You got to bring a sacrifice for that too. And not only the holy things, but sins against other people. And we talked about that a lot uh, last week. And so um, the, the additional information that he brings out here is who gets to eat it and where they eat it and things like that. What's really being um, brought out in each one of these is, is um, and I find it interesting, it's the priest who does the work that gets the food. Do you guys notice that? The priest that would, like, offers it up on behalf of that person, the, who puts in the work, they're the ones that get to receive um, of the, the goods. And in this case, I don't know if you noticed that they got the hide, from the animal, they got certain parts of the meat and then they could enjoy it. So that would have been, you know, maybe boring to you now, but if you're a priest, you're listening very closely to these regulations. Like, wait, wait, which cut do I get? So um, they were all about it. Verse 11. Now we're moving to the last of the offerings. This is the law of the sacrifice of the peace um, offering. And the one, uh, let me read that again. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, excuse me, that one may offer to the Lord. Um, if he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer it with thanksgiving a sacrifice, unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, loaves of um, a fine flour well mixed with oil. And with the sacrifice of the peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread, and from it shall offer one loaf from each of the offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offering. And the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not have any of it until morning. Let's pause there. So quickly, don't lose me. The peace offering, a.k.a. the fellowship offering, guys, this was voluntary. And it was also the most joyful of all the offerings. Because remember, what was the peace offering about? This one wasn't for like atonement or covering your sin. 
This was one, and notice it's listed last because it was often the last one to be offered. When the sin offerings dealt with, the guilt offerings dealt with, the burnt offerings dealt with, then they would bring a peace offering. A peace offering. A fellowship offering. And here's the idea. You'd bring that offering, and you'd put part of it up on the altar to God. The priest would, who did the work got a chunk of meat from it. But then the rest of the meat would go to the, the person who brought it and to his family, and they would have a big communal feast. And what was the whole point of the peace offering? That you have peace with God. There's peace with God. There's fellowship with God. I love the New Testament word for fellowship, koinonia. It speaks of participation, communion. In fact, our word communion is koinonia. It, it talks about this close, intimate oneness. And the whole point of the peace offering was, I'm not coming because my sins aren't forgiven. I'm coming because they are forgiven. I'm not asking for anything. I'm just coming to just be with you, God, and enjoy fellowship with you. And of course, Jesus is our peace offering. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. John says in, in 1 John chapter 1 that our fellowship is with the Son and with one another. So that's what this picture is. Fellowship with the Father and fellowship with those who are enjoying the meal together. Remember when Pastor Steve was talking about the meal on Sunday? Is anybody here Sunday? Yep, just seeing if you're awake. Because I saw all of you. And he's talking about how sharing a meal was an intimate thing because, I mean, you've got this pita and you're slopping the sauce over here and this guy's getting his piece and slurping it in the sauce and ripping off the same one. They didn't have napkins. They would actually, like, use the bread as a napkin. And it's just a sloppy, awesome mess. It was an intimate thing. Germs. I mean, if you don't like double dipping, this was not for you. But the whole thing communicated intimacy. We're sharing a meal together, but we're sharing our lives together. And in a sense, we're becoming one because there's one piece of bread and I'm pulling some off of it and eating it and it's becoming a part of me. You're pulling some off of it and eating it and it's becoming a part of you. So in a way, we're connected now. And that was the idea with the Father. And guys, that's the idea of communion too, isn't it? We take of his body as it were and we eat and we're celebrating that oneness with him and, and with one another. But this, this peace offering, this joyful, joyful peace offering. Now, the stipulation that's added here is in verses 11 through 15 was dealing with if you're bringing it specifically just to say thank you. How's that? There were certain things you had to do and you can read all the deets if you want later, but, but one of the sacrifices you could bring was just to say thank you. I think the word um, give thanks or the phrase give thanks is used over 70 times in the Bible. The word thanksgiving is used over 38 times in the Bible. I think it's an important thing that we are those who give thanks to God. Amen? Several months ago, I gave a sermon from Luke 17 about the 10 lepers. You guys remember that story? There's 10 lepers, and we can't go into the whole story, but just suffice it to say they're outcasts. They're on their deathbed. There's no hope for them. But they saw Jesus one day, and they cried out from a distance, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he said, turn around, go show yourself to the priest. They turned around, they went, and as they were going, it says they were healed. One of the guys couldn't handle it. The other nine kept going. This guy turned around, fell, not at a distance, but at the very feet of Jesus, giving him thanks. And Jesus' response was interesting. He says, weren't there nine, or weren't there ten cleansed? Where's the other nine? And I don't think he was, like, being a jerk about it. He was just like, this is a little bit shocking that only one out of ten came back to say thank you. I wonder if there's any significance to that ratio. 
I hope not. If so, I want to be the one-tenth. I want to be one of the guys that just comes back and just says, thank you, Jesus, thank you. Anybody here like being thanked? Nobody? Who here likes being thanked? Let's try This is a group participation part. Um, God likes being thanked, not because he's insecure or anything like that, but I, I, there, thanks is important to him. And so that's one of the ways you could come to worship was just to give thanks. We've got to boogie a little bit here, guys. Verse 16. But if the sacrifice is uh, for a vow, it's a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers the sacrifice and the next day so that he doesn't have to eat it on that day. If he's ending a vow of some kind or making a vow and, and he's celebrating the end of it or whatever, he has two days to eat the food. But what remains, verse 17, of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day has to be burned with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it uh, shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted. Uh, he who eats of it um, shall not be uh, shall bear his iniquity. Verse 19. Now this is another a little variant here. He says, um, "Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. All who are clean may eat the flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, while an uncleanness is on him." That person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches any unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or unclean beast or unclean detestable creature, you might ask what those are. Trust me, we're going to get into that later on. And eat some of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering. Um, that person is cut off from his people. Um, verses 19 through 21 are interesting in that. What is he saying? To participate in that eating of the peace offering if the meat touches something ceremonially unclean, it's contaminated. And if a person, listen, is ceremonially unclean in this context, they're not allowed to eat of that fellowship offering. Why? Because there's, quote, unquote, uncleanness on them. Now, this is talking about ceremonial uncleanness, not cooties or anything like that. But there, there were certain things. They had to have their sin offering. They had to, to be right with God and be ceremonially clean. Then they could participate in the fellowship offering. And I like that. I just want to say this one thing about that. To really, truly have fellowship with God, you can't have uncleanness hanging around. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about unconfessed sin. Sometimes we're like, oh, I just don't feel close to God. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it can be because there's unconfessed sin in our life. There's, in a sense, if you want to make the parallel, uncleanness on us. You've gone through your day and you've been bitter at your coworker, angry about that and this. There's all this, and you're wondering, why am I not feeling close fellowship with God? Because there's dirt on you, so to speak. You've sinned. You see, our sin as believers, it's not like we lose our salvation. What we lose is intimacy with God. That's why in 1 John 1, 9, the context being fellowship, John says, so if you sin, confess your sin, and he's faithful and just to forgive you and wash you or purify you from all unrighteousness. Does that make sense? I love that verse. I quote it all the time because that is how you keep clean, if you would. That is how you keep constant fellowship with God. The moment you realize you had a bad thought, the moment you realize you lost your cool, the moment you realize you had a wrong motive, the moment you realized you just flipped that guy off in traffic, the moment you realize, I, I'm talking about some of you guys, um, 
The moment you realize that sin, you don't wallow in it or try to pay God back. You go, whoa, God, you know what? No excuses. I confess to you that I was wrong. It was a wrong heart attitude. I'm not going to make excuses for it. I plead the blood of Jesus over that, and I just receive forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. And guess what? Boom. Confessed, dealt with, washed, fellowship. But you don't actually get to enjoy that fellowship if you've just got all this junk piled up, right? So, man, clean. Stay clean. Um, I want to talk more about that, but I can't. Verse 22. And, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. Now, here's a couple little more rules here because we don't have enough rules yet. He said, you shall eat no fat of the ox or the sheep or the goat, fat of the animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by other beasts may not be put to any use, but there's no, uh, on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal, of which the food offering may be made to the Lord, shall cut off from his people, Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether a fowl, animal, uh, in your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person is cut off. Three things. You can't eat the blood. We've talked about that. We'll talk about it again later. You can't eat the fat. The fat was the Lord's. And you can't eat roadkill. That's what he was basically saying. You can't eat animals that have been torn by other animals or hit by a, a Toyota. You can't eat those. Verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of the peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord uh, from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. Verse 30. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offering. He shall bring uh, the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering to the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offering. And whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contri con contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. Verse 35. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offering from the day that, we, uh, that it is presented to serve as priests to the Lord. Verse 36. And the Lord commanded this to be given to the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. I'm reading quickly, and I, I don't mean to glance over this. It's actually really important. There's a precedent here. Verses 28 through um, 36 getting real specific. He's saying, look, when you bring this, the priest gets the breast, the priest gets the right thigh, and, and you're thinking, well, those are really good cuts. How can the priest get those? Because what God is declaring is a workman's worthy of his hire. And later on in Deuteronomy, it'll say you don't muzzle the ox that treads the corn. Pastor Steve dealt with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when Paul was making the case that those who preach the gospel should also be able to live by the gospel. In other words, the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, they, they weren't free to go be entrepreneurs and do this and do that. They were called into full-time specific ministry. And what God was saying is, um, you're going to provide for them. They're helping you with spiritual things. You're going to help them with material things. And there's really a precedent that even Jesus, as Pastor Steve pointed out weeks ago, that even Jesus quoted and brought up and 
Um, again, that's found in 1 Corinthians 9 as, where, as well as Paul was saying. Basically, those who um, make their living in doing the things of the Lord in full-time ministry, they ought to be supported. And I think that's, um, again, the context of 1 Corinthians 9, by the way, was that Paul was deferring his right. You don't have to. But the idea was you take care of those. In fact, Paul says, I think, in Timothy, to count those worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word. And so, you know, this, this could sound very self-serving because I'm a pastor. I don't mean it to be. It's more of a, a commendation because that's what you do as a church. It makes me sad um, when I see pastors who are in congregations, and I'm not t- talking about living rich, but they ought to be able to be supported by the sheer number of people in their congregation, but they're having to work two or three jobs. And really it's a bummer because everybody kind of loses because the, the ministry is supposed to be that of prayer and the word. Um, real quick story. In 1999, I was sent out from my home church in Southern Oregon. I was 26 years old. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. Somebody asked me the other day where I went to seminary, and I kind of chuckled. I didn't make it out of junior college, much less seminary. But God uses the foolish things of the world. Um, but I was 26 years old. I was, had just come on staff as one of the assisting pastors at a fairly large church in Southern Oregon. And... Uh, through a lot of prayer and whatnot, the, the pastor had sent out, in one meeting, sent out 12 pastors to go start churches. And this was great because um, the stipulation was, Jason, I know you're married, you have three kids, babies. I'm sending you out to this place to go start a church. Uh, we're going to treat you like a missionary. We're going to support you financially on your same salary, which was like very little at the time, for a year. I've told this story before, so I know many of you have heard it. But So you're financially set for a year, um, but you don't get your next paycheck until you're there, so you better get moving. And so my wife and I were like, packed a U-Haul. We literally had a U-Haul packed and ready to go before we actually had somewhere to go. We didn't even have a house to move to in the part of Oregon that we were supposed to be going to. So in faith, we were ready to go. And God opened up a place. We got there. And a year went by. And the idea was after a year, the church would stop supporting us. If we were a church started and we could wean ourselves off before that year, great. But when that year was up, the support was cut off financially, sink or swim. And by the way, you don't have a job back here if it doesn't work out. It was great. That's called getting kicked out of the nest. It might actually be called being fired. I'm not, I haven't decided yet. But anyways, um, so a, a year had gone by. We said a Bible star said he started in a living room. We had about 35 people. It blossomed into a little Sunday morning thing. Literally, if we, if we had 20 people, I should say, 20, 25 people on a Sunday, it was full. And then we, we, you know, about a year went by. We just got into this little building, that little warehouse that fit 80 people. And um, I didn't even have any official leadership guys, but the guys I was kind of grooming for that, I brought along. And I said, okay, here's the deal, guys. My home church that sent me out, this is the amount they're giving me every month. This is the last month of support, so um, I'm good with getting a job. I w- you know, I'm fine with working. I know how to work, so I'll do that. But I just don't feel like I'm supposed to. And th- those guys, there's about two or three of them, they looked at me and said, nope, I don't know how it's going to work out, but we want you to teach the Word, and we want you to be, it's gonna, we'll just, we're just going to trust the Lord. So we had like a church of like 35 people, and I never missed a paycheck. And the Lord provided for 18 years without missing a paycheck one time. But I, I just say that like as a commendation to a congregation like this one that gets that, that says like t- takes care of their pastors so that they can be free to do the work that they've been called to do. Amen? Plus, I just like telling the stories of when we got sent out. 
So there's that. Okay, last, last couple of verses, and then we're done. Verse 37. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, which we haven't really talked about yet. It comes up later. It's kind of a hybrid. Of the, and the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So he lists those offerings and you know, each one of those clearly speaks of Jesus and we've talked about that. We could talk about it more. We won't. Um, just in closing, I was thinking a lot about this and, and I'll end on this thought, but you know, the whole Old Testament system of worship was based on basically three things. A temple, priests, and sacrifices. A tabernacle, temple, you guys understand what I mean, a physical place. In the New Testament, it's not that way anymore, is it? Because it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, in that day that the presence of God was in a location, and if you wanted to meet with God, you'd go to that location. Now in the New Testament, we are the location. Jesus comes into us, and we go out into the world. Instead of the world coming to the location, the Holy Spirit's coming to us, and we go out into the world. And not, a, not only that, but it was based on priests. Well, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that as Christians, we become a kingdom of priests. Jesus, our great high priest, we're under priests. You know, we're just people that are taking other people before God and, and taking God before people, just in that simple way. And then it was based on sacrifices. And I don't know about you guys, I am so glad that we don't bring sacrifices. That we don't ever have to bring any of these sacrifices ever again. Can I get an amen? Why? Because Jesus took care of that once and for all. He fulfilled the type. He's the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world, who takes away the sins of the world. It's all finished in Him, and we're free from that. But there are spiritual sacrifices we can bring, spiritual sacrifices. They're listed in, in the Bible. One of those is, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, that when we share our goods, when we support, if you would, missionaries like Paul, supported by the Philippians, it says in chapter 13, verse 16 of Hebrews, do not neglect to do good and share with what, what you have because such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul in Philippians 4.18 calls the gifts that he received from that supporting church a sacrifice that was pleasing and acceptable to God. Another spiritual sacrifice we can bring is uh, in my notes. There you go. There it is. We've already talked about it, so I don't need to belabor it ourselves. Romans 12.1. Therefore, my brothers, by the mercies, I beseech you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, pleasing to him, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. The greatest spiritual offering we can give to God is our lives, as a, if you would, a burnt offering. But there's one last one, and I just, we're going to end on this. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, and it says this. Through him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that give thanks or acknowledge his name. That's the sacrifice that is pleasing to God that we're supposed to bring all the time, praise to God. Amen? The word praise there, not to get geeky, geeky on you, but it's, it's only used one time in the entire Bible. And it speaks of a verbal out loud praise and thanks offering to God. And guys, that can take on many forms. You know, what we did tonight, singing to God, 
But I was thinking a lot about this. You know, we praise people. We praise. We talk about things. We praise others so often. I want to be someone who is constantly praising God. Whether that means saying hallelujah. I think sometimes we're kind of afraid to say that word, to say hallelujah. That's a great word. It means praise the Lord. And I'll say it in church, but I need to say it outside of church. And, and I want to be somebody that is praising Jesus continually, speaking of his greatness. I mean, we praise others like the Dodgers, right? Just tracking with me? It's the deal of the century. We just acquired Mookie Betts, one of the only five five-tool baseball players in baseball today. Hits for power, hits for average, can run, can field, and can throw. One of five players. And you tell, want to talk baseball? I will praise him all day long. You turn to the sports center, they'll pray. Oh, he can do this and he can do that. That's great. But I've got a God who's way better than a five-tool player. He's all, he's all present. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. He's full of truth. He can do anything. He's coming back. He's king of kings, lord of lords. And you know, I'm so reluctant to talk about him. But I'll talk about Mookie. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to go around saying, that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, LeBron, whatever. But guess what? Jesus can do this. You know what my Jesus did today? He's so good. He has so much grace. I can't believe it. And I don't want to be corny or weird about it, but I want that to be what's coming out of my mouth. And I want to give him praise. It says that we should offer up that spiritual praise of thanks constantly, talking about how good our Jesus is. Amen? Let's stand together. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you that you are worthy to be praised. You are so good. And thank you for the book of Leviticus. Thank you for people that are trudging through it with me. And we just want to get as much as we can about Jesus out of these pages. Lord, open our mouth to give you full praise this week. Tomorrow, when we go to school, we go to work, we go to the coffee shop, whatever we're doing, out in the water, wherever we're at, that we would be quick to talk about how awesome you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.